Welcome to the Cornerstone Baptist Church Podcast. My name is Justin Wheeler. I am the preaching pastor for Cornerstone. And today we are in week 41 of our journey through the Heidelberg Catechism. And that journey is going to end in just a few weeks. And uh, the, the Catechism itself is 52 weeks, 52 separate Lord's Days. It's intended to be used over an entire year. And since we're at 41, we just have a few left until we finish. Now, uh, I'm looking forward to finishing up, but it's been a great journey so far. But we're not done. Today, we are going to continue our study in the Catechism and continue our study of the, the Ten Commandments. Uh, we're going to look at the Seventh Commandment and questions 108 and 109. So these two questions deal with the Seventh Commandment, which reads like this. In Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 18, five simple words. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. Now, adultery is a term that we're all familiar with because uh, it's just it's an action that we're familiar with. It refers to a sexual act that is far too common to us and in our culture. In fact, adultery, the voluntary sexual intercourse between a married person and a person who is not their spouse, it's not really seen as a big deal at all by many in our culture. I mean, sure, there are and there will always be people, I suppose, that would prefer their spouse not have sex with another person. But the fact that adultery has become so common has made it seem fairly tame compared to some of the other sexual practices taking place in, in 21st century America. We live in a culture where our entire lives are inundated with sex. It's on our TVs. It's in our movies. Uh, catalogs and ads are delivered to our door with nice high-gloss photos, right? It's on billboards when we drive into downtown. It's plastered across magazine racks as we approach the checkout counter at the grocery store or the pharmacy. And of course, it's almost as if the internet was made for the specific purpose of pushing sexuality into our lives in every imaginable way. And this has had a huge impact on us, uh, on our individual lives, on our families, and on our culture. It has desensitized us to the ubiquity of sex. It's just everywhere. Adultery is so common that it is simply accepted as a normal part of adult life, especially for our political leaders. In fact, if a political leader takes measures to remain faithful to his spouse, he is mocked as being sexually repressive and just out of touch. So, uh, sex before marriage is just normal, and it's been this way for generations. We fully expect children uh, kids, teenagers, to engage in sexual practices. But now we have other things to deal with. Homosexuality has been declared a basic human right by our Supreme Court. Transgenderism and transsexualism are just this cultural moment's examples of sexual deviance being made to look normal. And God's standards, once again, are being made to look obscene. And so that five-word command, you shall not commit adultery, it seems simple to many of us. But in a world and a culture like ours, it is far from simple. But what does all of uh, you know that stuff have to do with this particular command, right? I mean, what is homosexuality and uh, all these different things that I just referenced have to do with God forbidding adultery? Well, actually, it has everything to do with it because this command, you shall not commit adultery, is not the only time we see this phrase in Scripture. Jesus actually teaches in the New Testament that there is an underlying issue of the heart behind the command that God gave in Deuteronomy 5. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. 
But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, Jesus is talking about lust here, and he's telling us that lust is adultery of the heart. It is, lust is the strong sexual desire for something or someone that is forbidden. It is the sexual desire for someone or something that doesn't belong to you, that you're not married to. And therefore, this seventh command, along with Jesus' expansion of it, makes any sexual act outside of marriage between a man and a woman, it makes it sinful. And that is exactly what the Heidelberg Catechism is trying to help us understand. That this particular command, once we bring it into our understanding of what Jesus has taught us, it it covers every act of sexual sin. So let's look at the question. Question 108. What is God's will for you in the seventh commandment? And here's Heidelberg's answer. God condemns all unchastity. We should therefore thoroughly detest it and married or single live decent and chaste lives. Now, adultery is a word we know all too well, but unchastity may need a definition simply because we don't use that word very often. Chastity refers to the practice of refraining from any sex outside of marriage. Any sex. Um, In some cases, people will take a vow of chastity for religious reasons. This is common within uh, the, the, the priesthood and in the nunneries uh, in Catholic religion, uh, but they'll take a vow of chastity for religious reasons, and that means that they intend to refrain from all sexual intercourse, and therefore they are not going to get married. And so when the Heidelberg says that God condemns all unchastity, it is saying, and rightly so, that any sexual act outside of the covenant of marriage between one man and one woman is sin. Now, our understanding of all sexual immorality, of of all of what God declares to be right with regard to sex and wrong with regard to sex, all of our understanding of that is rooted in the fact that any form of sexual identity, sexual temptation, or sexual satisfaction that is contrary to what God declares to be good, all of that is sin. And, And what I mean is that when we look to Scripture to develop a biblical theology of sex, we must start with the type of sex that God declares to be good and pleasing in His sight. And anything other than that is determined to be sinful. Anything outside of God's design for human sexual expression is wrong. And so the Heidelberg draws this out in question 109 when it asks, Does God in this commandment forbid only such scandalous sins as adultery? And the answer is this. We are temples of the Holy Spirit, body and soul. And God wants both to be kept clean and holy. That is why he forbids everything which incites unchastity, whether it be actions, looks, talks, thoughts, or desires. Okay, so the proper starting point for a discussion on the biblical theology of sex must begin in the Garden of Eden. Because in the Garden, God gave us not only a picture of the first example of human sexuality, but he also reveals to us his plan for human sexuality. So here's Genesis chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 18 through 25. And the Bible says this, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. 
and whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, God took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This, at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, these next two verses are incredibly important. Verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, this passage is, is beautiful in many ways. It's a, it's a revelation of God's uh, of the beginning. Uh, it's a revelation of God's introduction of man to woman. It, it tells us uh, about these two coming together, but it also tells us th- this beautiful story uh, of how when Adam saw his, his wife for the first time, when he saw this woman, he, he began to sing. He, he declared, this one is the one that was made for me. Um, but it, there's also this statement at the end, verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, and then they were naked and not ashamed. Uh, that statement doesn't seem to fit with everything that's going on here. I mean, God's telling this beautiful love story of Adam and Eve coming together, and then right at the end of that, he gives us this cultural statement of marriage, right? And therefore a man shall leave his father. Adam and Eve didn't have a father and a mother to leave. So what's going on here? Well, God is giving us this statement. He's, he's, he's laying this foundation upon all of human culture that this is what is right, that this is what is good, and this is what he has made man and woman for. They are to come together into a one flesh union as husband and wife, and they are to be naked, and they are to enjoy that union in its just relational intimacy as well as its sexual and physical intimacy. This is God's plan. This is the foundation for what the Bible teaches us about sex. Human sexuality was created by God as a pleasurable gift to be enjoyed only by a man and his wife. So sex was a means to build families. It was a means to strengthen intimacy and unity between a husband and a wife. And any type of sexual act that falls short of this standard is disordered. It's sinful. It's a deviation from what God says is good, and therefore he declares it to be sinful. Now, that's our understanding of sexual immorality. Any type of sexual gratification, any type of sexual activity that falls outside the scope of God's revealed plan for a marriage between a man and a woman, anything that falls outside of that is sin. And so we go back to question 108 and the answer to it. God condemns all unchastity. We should therefore thoroughly detest it and, married or single, live decent and chaste lives. Now, I'm very well aware of the fact that this view, this teaching, isn't popular, especially in our culture today. It wasn't popular in the, the culture of the Old Testament Jews. It wasn't popular for the during the Roman first century culture of the New Testament. It, it wasn't it hasn't been popular at any particular time. 
Um, C.S. Lewis wrote this. He, he wrote, Chastity is the most unpopular of the Christian virtues. There is no way to get around it. The Christian rule is either marriage with complete faithfulness to your spouse or else total abstinence, total chastity. Now, this is so difficult and so contrary to our instincts, Lewis writes, that obviously either Christianity is wrong or our sexual instinct, as it is now, has gone wrong. One or the other. Of course, being a Christian, I think it is the instinct which has gone wrong, end quote. Now, Lewis wrote this in 1952 in the culture of Great Britain, and I have no way of knowing if it was absolutely true at that time, but I take his word for it. But I do agree with his conclusion that the reason that the Bible's teaching on sex is never going to be popular, it's never been and it will never be popular, is that the, the problem doesn't lie with Christianity. The problem lies with our sinful sexual instinct. God's commands about sexuality and His commands against our sexual immorality will always seem out of place to us so long as our sexual instincts are driven by our sinful brokenness. And, and, and even as people who are born again, who, who have our hearts made new by the Spirit of God, we still are going to struggle with sexual temptation. And so the question is, what can we do to counteract our sexual brokenness, our sinful temptations? What can we do to honor God and seek to obey His commands? Well, I'm going to, I'm going to give you two things, and there's, there's a lot more that could be said here, but number one, there's a, there's a step in, in our approach to battling sin and temptation that follows with what Jesus taught us, and it has to do with how do we battle against that temptation. And he says this, he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Now, I don't believe that what Jesus is telling us there is that we need to maim ourselves. I think what he means here is that we need to behave as if we had actually plucked out our eyes. If your right eye causes you to sin, then don't look. And Jesus actually is, is commanding us to take real and drastic measures to battle against sin and temptation, especially sexual sin and temptation. And so for some of us, that means you need to get a dumb phone and get rid of your smartphone. For some of us, that means, no, actually, for all of us, that means we need to put filters on our computers and our home network. For, for some of us, that means we need to stop reading certain books that we're reading that, that entice us into these things and cause us to dwell on these thoughts. For others, this means you probably need to delete some of your social media accounts so that you, need, so that you can stop interacting with things that you don't need to be interacting with. It, it means that you need to probably stop watching certain movies that you've enjoyed, or you need to stop paying for HBO, or you need to you know, stop watching that show on Netflix, or even get rid of those things. You need to pluck those things out of your life. And, and yes, I know that's drastic. I mean, it's not drastic in reality, but for most of us in this cultural moment, we think, well, that's crazy. That's drastic. Your friends are going to laugh at you. They're going to think, what are you doing? You're not going to know how this story ends. You're not, you're not going to be as culturally educated as you could be. And all that may be true. But, but Jesus says it is better for you to be culturally maimed and preserve your purity. So the question is, whether or not you're willing to go to this extreme to battle sin and temptation. Jesus says it is better to live life culturally maimed to avoid certain experiences in this life than it is to risk final destruction in the life to come. That's what he says at the end of that, that statement. He says it's better for you to go into eternity without an eye or a hand than it is to have those things and face destruction. Now, this is just one approach. Battle against the sin and temptation in your life. And this is a good approach, but 
I don't believe that this approach is ultimately enough. Because ultimately, this approach to changing your behaviors, it can't change your heart. This approach cannot address the actual root of the problem of sexual sin, which is a heart problem. Behavior modification alone will not solve the problem of our hearts because only Jesus can solve the deep problems of our heart. Now, one of my deepest Christian convictions is that the gospel is so much more than simply the minimal doctrine that one must affirm in order to go to heaven. The gospel is the power of God that saves us from sin's guilt and sin's control, but it also changes us from the inside out. It turns our entire lives upside down. The gospel is so powerful that it can turn an enemy of God into a worshiper of God. It is so powerful that it can change your eternity as well as your life here and now. And so I don't just think that we need some behavior modification tips. We need more and more of the gospel. We need the gospel to change the very core of who we are. We need the gospel to reorient our hearts around the weight of God's glory and God's love. And when the gospel takes root in us, it will begin a process of reorienting all of life around our growing love for God and our it'll help us to overcome a love for sin. So as believers in Christ, here's how that applies. As believers in Christ, our identity as gospel people propels us into battling sexual sin. Jesus doesn't command us to embrace a biblical sexual ethic in order that we can be saved, but instead, as born-again people, he calls us to embrace a God-honoring view of sex. So obedience to God flows out of our renewed relationship to God. And here's one of the ways that's going to apply. We need to remember and understand that our identity as Christians is in Christ and not in our sexuality. So the culture says you are your sexuality, right? The culture says that to deny our sexual urges is to deny our humanity. And the culture wants us to believe that if we reject... um, it's, it's views of sexuality and, and the practice of those views, then we are rejecting what it means to be human. But the Bible teaches us something else. The Bible teaches us that, number one, that, that sex is a gift from God. And, and viewed in the right context, it's a good thing. Within the context of a monogamous, heterosexual marriage, sex is an amazing gift of God that is to be enjoyed for pleasure, for procreation, and for the joy of intimacy. Outside of monogamous, heterosexual marriage, sex in all its forms is sin, and it is a form of brokenness, and it will bring misery along with it. The Bible also teaches us that sex and romantic fulfillment are not the keys to life. So let's say you're single, um, and let's say you, you have every intention of remaining single, or maybe you have no intentions of remaining single, and you just can't wait until the day that you need to understand this, that sex and romantic fulfillment are not going to fulfill you. They are gifts, but they're not the ultimate point of life. In fact, Jesus was celibate. He was completely chaste. He lived the fullest and most God-glorifying life ever, and he never had sex. Jesus teaches us that the key to to a full life is not intimacy with another person, but rather intimacy with God. And a lot of people don't want to hear that, especially young people who can't wait to get married so they can engage in this gift that God has given. But we need to understand that, and we need to let our hearts rest on this fact. That, number one, as Christians, our identity is not in our sexuality. And as Christians, sexuality is not going to ultimately fulfill us. Only Christ can do that. Only intimacy with God can do that. 
And in our American culture, we have completely distorted this. Our culture promotes the pursuit of sexual pleasure first and foremost. And then in the context of what we believe is our sexual identity, uh, we find a religious teaching that affirms and supports that. But the Bible says something completely different. The Bible says you find your relationship to Christ, to God first and foremost. You understand that that is the greatest and most important thing. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then, within the context of the relationship that we have with God through Christ, then we learn to enjoy God's gift of sex in the way that glorifies him. And the gospel reorients our heart to begin to see these things in the right way. So trusting Christ with your sexuality is hard. Because it goes against the grain of what culture says, and in many ways, it goes against the grain of what we feel. Our natural predisposition is to sin. It is to go against God's glory, God's rule, and God's word, and to do whatever we want, whatever feels good in the moment. Because that's just who we are as sinful people. But when we come to know Christ and Christ calls us out of this life of sin, we need to understand that it's going to be hard. But Jesus, well... Jesus has something to say to sinful people who are caught up in sexual sin. In this life, Jesus dealt with a lot of sinful people, even those caught up with sexual problems. But notice, well, you will notice if you read the New Testament Gospels, that Jesus never seems to push those people away. When individuals are caught in sin and they're brought to Jesus, he addresses their sin, but he doesn't push them away. He doesn't condemn them. In fact, he invites them to come close. He talks to them. He offers them grace. When he encountered people who were involved with deep sexual sins, Jesus drew near to them. He offered them grace. He was honest with them about their sin. But then he looked them in the eye and he said, Now come and follow me. And that's what he extends to us today. As believers in Christ who struggle with sexual sin, he invites us to come close. He addresses those sins. He tells us to go and sin no more. He gives us grace. Grace we didn't earn, we, we didn't deserve. And then he looks us in the eye and shows dignity to us, shows us dignity and says, come and follow me. Thank you for joining me today to learn more about this seventh commandment. Next week, we're going to continue the study of the commandments by looking at the eighth commandment, which addresses stealing and what it means to take what doesn't belong to us. Now, I hope you'll join me for that discussion as we look at Lord's Day 42 and questions 110 and 111. Now, if you want to learn more about Cornerstone Baptist Church, you can find us online at cornerstonewiley.org. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram at CBC Wiley. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cornerstonewiley. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Google Play to stay up to date on all the new content. Thank you so much for listening.